All of life is clay in the hands of the potter. He holds the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the upright and the disgraceful. The remarkable thing about the Father is that he is able to take all of the pieces of life and work them into a unique masterpiece. When all I am encounters the great I am, the result is transformation, blessing, and life. gather this morning and we thank you for that call, that call that, that we just sung about that, that draws us deeper into more, and that call sometimes, sometimes haunts us and sometimes stirs in us this beautiful, motivating energy to move on, and today I pray that wherever we're at that it would encounter us, that call, and that it would invite us deeper. Would you speak, Jesus? Would you allow us to hear your voice today? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, like many of you, we have two junk drawers in our kitchen. Don't lie and say you don't have them. We, we, we've got them, and um, it's the place that we put everything that doesn't have a place. Uh, that's sort of what the junk drawer is, is for. It's also the place that we put things that are on the counter when we're having people come over and it's like, oh crud, they're knocking on the door right now and we pull everything into the junk drawer and close it, right? Anybody want to lie and say they don't do it? We're all in that boat. We're on the, One of the things that inevitably always ends up in our junk drawer are uh, my headphones, my earbuds. And I put my headphones, my earbuds in that drawer. I, I coil them up nicely, and I put them in said junk drawer. I close said junk drawer. And regardless of whether or not anybody looks in that drawer, when I go back to get my headphones, they are not neatly and nicely coiled. They look like a rat's nest. Anybody with me here? I mean, anytime you go to pick up your headphones, they don't look the way that you left them. They look like a rat's nest. They're tangled, they're disorganized, and I think you could do an experiment. I think you could roll these up, coil them up nicely, put them down on a table, stare at it for five minutes, and it would eventually look like this without anybody even touching it. Somehow it just happens. I don't get it, but I do know this. I know that that's really similar to the way life feels a lot of times. And see, you know this and I know this, that if we just sort of take our hands off of life, that what ends up happening is not that we find ourselves in places of vitality and in places of life and in places of health and goodness. When we take our hands off of our life, when we take our hands off of being intentional about the things that matter to us most, they don't drift to this place of being way better and way more healthy and way more life-giving. They actually trend in the exact opposite way, don't they? Um, this is true of, of marriages, right? Uh, all you have to do to make your marriage worse is nothing. Seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? But it's true. It's true. As a, as a parent, as a father, maybe you're here as a, as a dad this morning, and, and isn't this true of fatherhood that when we, we do nothing, it doesn't stay the same as a father. When we do nothing, actually things grow worse and we have less of the influence that we want to have without an intentionality behind life. 
it tends to lead towards this chaotic rat's nest type of existence. We, we call it drift. It happens in marriages, it happens in jobs, it happens in friendships. Hey, it happened in your backyard over winter when you didn't do anything to your garden. You walked out there this spring and looked at it and went, oh, it looks wonderful. Everything's growing right in rows. Praise be to God. None of you did that, right? Because that's not the way life works. If we take our hands off of things, they don't drift to a place of life and vitality and health. They actually go in the exact opposite direction. One of these great philosophers, scholars, and authors of our day and time, D.A. Carson, he writes this. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and we call it faith. We, we cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide into godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. It's true, isn't it? Here's what he's saying. He's going, hey, when we're not intentional about life, whether it's, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, it's, that principle is just as true for you as anybody else in the room. But if you are a follower of Christ, you know that if you're not intentional about the way that you walk with him, what ends up happening not, is not that you find yourself in these places of, of fullness of joy, but actually tangled messes. So the author of Hebrews will write, to those early followers of Christ. And, and he says this, he says, therefore, we must, will you say that with me? Pay much closer attention. So he's going, hey guys, like, wake up, wake up. We've been given this great calling. We've been given this wonderful invitation, but we've got to pay attention to what we've heard, lest we, what? Drift away from it. As if to say that if you do nothing, you will never find yourself in the place that you want to be. If you just take your hands off of the wheel and just put it in cruise control and coast. Hey, cruise control is a great way to travel across country. It's a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live. You know this and I know this. That drift, drift is actually our default. It's what happens when we do nothing. And so the things that we loved about our marriage or our job or our kids, they might have been okay yesterday, but we know if we're not intentionally cultivating the soil and the ground of those things that are most important to us in life, we will eventually get to a place that we never wanted to end up. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he has this lofty picture of who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. And he says, listen, I consider everything rubbish, garbage, trash, compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he follows that up with, oh, come on, people, not that I've already obtained all this or that I've made perfect. He goes, I haven't arrived yet, so here's what I do. Uh, I... 
drift forward. I coast on, coast on, brothers and sisters. No, no, no. The Apostle Paul goes, with all of God's energy and spirit and grace and life working in me, I press on. He's going, I am in this. I'm invested because I know if I don't press on, I will drift to a place that I never wanted to end up. So if you're here this morning, and you sort of walked in on fumes, this message is for you. If you're here this morning and there's some areas of your life, maybe it's a friendship or a relationship that you're in, and, and things just aren't going the way that you wanted them to go, this message is for you. If you've gotten to the place in life where when you pictured your life 20, 30, 40 years down the road, you never envisioned yourself standing where you're at right now, today, you drifted, this message is for you. And if you're not a follower of Christ and you're just sort of looking in the window going, what do these weirdos believe? This message is for you. This message is for you. If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 35 is where we're going to be camping out today. Will you turn there with me? Jacob is the person that we've been following over the last few months. He's one of the great patriarchs of the Christian faith, of the Hebrew faith. And he is following God. And we just got out of chapter 32 last week where Jacob had this wonderful encounter with God. He received a new name from God. He's no longer Jacob, but he's Israel now. And he had this wrestling encounter with God. And what we said last week was, if you have doubts, if you have questions, if you have fears, that God does not want you to ignore those and push those away. In fact, the way that you grow as a follower of God is by embracing the questions, not ignoring them. By facing the fears rather than turning your back on them. By pushing in rather than pushing away. And Jacob did that. He wrestles with God. And then in verse 33, chapter 33, he meets his brother Esau. He and his brother have this great reconciliation. His brother forgives him for wronging him egregiously when they were younger. And at the end of chapter 33, Jacob buys for a hundred pieces of money, chapter, nine, or chapter 33, verse 19, a plot of land. And it's this symbolic picture of everything that Jacob has hoped for and wanted for the last 70 years of his life, have finally come to fruition. The land that was promised to him back when he was a young boy because he was part of the promise of God has been fulfilled. And so Jacob sets up his tent. Jacob sets up his tent and he pours himself some nice frosty lemonade and he sits on his porch, on his lazy boy chair or on his rocking chair and he just takes in the fact that he's got the land, he's got the family, he's got the blessing, he's got the promise, he's got everything he ever dreamed of. But how many of you know that not every story ends with, and they lived happily ever after? See, it's not too far after chapter 33 when Jacob buys this land that one of his daughters, his name is Dinah, wanders into the town of, of Shechem. Will you say that with me? Shechem, which actually wasn't where Jacob in, originally intended to end up. Jacob originally was heading out to go to Bethel. That's where he wanted to camp out. That's where he wanted to live. And he settles for Shechem. 
which is about 20 plus miles away from where he was actually intending to go. But maybe he just got too tired. Maybe he got a great deal on the land. All we know is that he didn't end up where he set out to go. He settled. He settled. And his daughter, Dinah, wanders into town, and you can read it. It's PG-13, rated R material. You can read chapter 34. At some point, she's violated by the men in that city. And one of the men says, hey, I've fallen in love with Dinah, and I want to marry her. And two of her brothers, Levi and Simeon, Jacob's sons, say, you can marry her if and only if you're circumcised like us. And not just you but everybody in the whole town of Shechem. Now, let's talk for just a second. You've got to be a pretty good salesperson to get the rest of the men in town to go through this operation so that you can marry this woman. And I use the term operation loosely. We're talking 4,000 years ago, a flint knife in a tent. That's what we're talking, right? And so somehow this guy talks him into it. I mean, he could sell um, ketchup popsicles to a woman wearing white gloves, right? He talks them into it somehow. And they're like, nah, sure, we're in. All the men in Shechem say, we'll have this surgery. We'll be circumcised. And day three, after they had the surgery, they're recovering. They are not exactly at their physical peak. And Levi and Simeon go and they kill every single man in this town. Anybody see that story on the flannel graph growing up? <laughs> I didn't. And we'll pray that our kids aren't learning it in, in children's church right now, right? I mean, it's one of those stories you read and you go, that's in the Bible? How strange, how weird, how absurd that people would use religion to hurt other people, huh? And so Jacob gets word that his sons have done this. And here's where we pick up the story. Chapter 34, verse 30. It says, And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of my land. Hey, here's, a, here's my translation. It's going to be really hard to have a good turnout at a block party because of what you guys have done. Thank you very much. You know what's interesting? is that Levi and Simeon are indignant that their sister was taken advantage of in the way that she was. You know what's devastating? Is that Jacob wasn't. You read through the story, and who is Jacob concerned with? Me. Me. This is going to be really hard to set up shop here now, you guys. It's going to be really hard to live. I have, my, I have my porch. I have my rocking chair. I've got my Arnold Palmer in hand. I'm watching the sunset every day. This is what we dreamed of. This is what we hoped for. This is what God promised us. And you guys are making it really hard on me. Hey, Jacob, this just in. Your daughter was violated, and you want to sit back and do nothing about it. And you see, where there is a lack of spiritual leadership, sin will always fill the void. Always. Every single time. It's what happens in the life of Jacob. It's what happens in the life of his family. He abdicates his role. Hey, hey look up at me for a second. He takes his foot off of the gas and goes, let's just coast for a while, guys. And his passive nature leads to the pain of his family. 
Always does. Happy Father's Day. But that's always the way that it ends up. And so, yeah, Jacob has to leave. He has to get to the place of, all right, we're not going to live here anymore. We're not going to dwell here. You guys have made it really hard on us. He says that they're going to destroy both you and I and our household. But they said, his boys say back to him, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? As if to say, dad, step up. Come on. Then God said to Jacob, this is chapter 35, verse 1, arise and go to Bethel. Jacob, you stopped short of going here originally, but I'm calling you deeper. I'm calling you higher. I'm calling you to more. David, I'm not letting you settle for Shechem. I'm calling you to Bethel. You'll remember, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, Jacob had an encounter with God at Bethel. It literally means house of God. He saw this stairway that came down. Um, Led Zeppelin wrote a song about it a little bit later on, but he saw this stairway that came down, and God's message was essentially this, Jacob, you will not set your foot on a place of this globe that is not drenched with my presence and glory. That was his message. And Jacob, I'm going to be faithful to you. And Jacob, I'm going to be good. And Jacob, I'm making some huge promises to you that you can build your life on. And he says, how about we go back there? How about we go to Bethel and dwell there? Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you first fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. So hey, Jacob, did you notice the foreign gods before God called you to Bethel? Jacob, you, you knew that they were in your camp. Jacob, you knew what was going on in your household. Jacob, you knew. But you were way too concerned with just taking in the goodness of God and sitting on your porch that you started to drift. You got passive. You got complacent. And eventually, Jacob, you ended up in this place that you never thought you'd be. And so chapter 34 in their narrative serves as this inciting incident where they face crisis. Dinah is violated, the brothers slaughter a whole town, and it's this moment in their life where everything is hitting the proverbial fan, and it's that moment that God finally gets Jacob's attention. Arise, go to Bethel, Jacob, do something. Break out of your passivity, your complacency. Be intentional, because life is slipping away from you, Jacob. And it's in those moments, isn't it? Those moments of life, because we hate crisis moments in life. But it's often the crisis moments in life that catalyze us to confront our complacency, isn't it? It's those moments of, I never wanted to end up here, where we look back at the shore of life and go, I've drifted. I'm not who I want to be. I'm not living in a way that I feel like aligns with what God has placed inside of me. And it's those crisis moments that give us a new perspective. And it's those crisis moments that open our ears to hear the voice of God in unique ways. So don't push away from the crisis. Utilize the crisis to give you a renewed perspective. Here's the way that C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully. He says, pain 
insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasure. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse, to wake up, to stir a deaf world. Arise and go to Bethel. In light of the circumstances and the crisis you've encountered, Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. Take the journey back, Jacob, to where you started. And friends, this is the point we're going to circle around this morning. Is it a return to vitality? A return to life? A return to fullness? That we all have an inkling of deep within our souls that we were designed for. A return to vitality begins... It begins for Jacob and it begins for you and I with a rejection of passivity and an embracing of intentionality. Why? Because you never drift anywhere good. No, nobody has ever ended up somewhere where their soul was full, where they were walking in joy, and they never ended up there and went, I don't really understand how we got here. It's always been an intentional decision to say, I'm going to pour into the things that are most important to me. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, that principle is true. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, he's saying, is there any area within you that's grown cold? Is there any area within you that's grown dark? Is there anything that you're neglecting? Is there anything that you need to be more intentional about today? Maybe as a parent. Maybe as a friend. Maybe, maybe it's with your health. I mean, this happens in every area of our life. If we aren't intentional, we drift to places we never intended to go. And so, with Jacob as our guide, I want to explore what does it look like to return to vitality? What does it look like to return to a place of life? Because I think a lot of times, at least in religious type of environments, the subtle or maybe not so subtle instruction is if you want to get back to a place of vitality, you need to embrace intentionality. And really what that means is try harder. Do more. Pull up your bootstraps. Come on. You can do it is often the subtle message. And what I want to tell you today is the news is way better than you can do it or do more or try harder. The pathway that Jacob charts is also our pathway to a full life. So let's look at what he does, because it's what we're called to do. Verse 2, it says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then, and if you have your own Bible, circle the word then. Then... Let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. And so, all of his family, they give him all of these different gods. This word, then, is a really interesting word, because it connects this action of saying, we're done with these other things and these idols, with, and now we're going to follow after, chase after Yahweh, the one true God. Here's what Jacob shows you and I. You cannot hold on to your idols and chase after God at the same time. You can't hold on to your sin and expect to encounter God at the same time. 
So many of us, we walk through life wanting to have our cake and eat it too. We want both and. We want to we pursue sin. We want to pursue pride. We want to pursue self. We want to pursue power. And we want to encounter God. And what Jacob clearly says in this narrative is, you can't do both. It's God or idols, but you can't have both. You can't have both. And so here's where he leads this, his family to. It's this place of repentance. There's three actions that you see if you read back through that passage. One is he puts away, or they, they say we're cutting ties with these idols, this sin that was in our life, these decisions we made deliberately not to follow God. We are turning our back on those things. We're changing our mind about those things. And in order to go and to meet with God, we have got to say we're done with the idols. And we know this is true in, in marriages, right? If there's, a, if there's an infidelity in a marriage, which is what idolatry is in a spiritual sense, that in order to go back to a place of vitality, there needs to be an intentional saying, I'm done with that, and I'm chasing after you now with everything that I have. We can't hold on to the idols and chase after God. The next thing he says, so they put it away, it says, and they purify themselves. It's this, it's this confessional piece of God we were wrong. We, we elevated some things that eventually sucked the life out of us. We were wrong. The scriptures are really clear in saying that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then it says that they put on these new garments. It's significant. It's, it's signifying the fact that they are walking forward, that they're moving forward in life. You guys, sometimes I, I think this word scares us so much because here's what you, we envision. I'll, I'll just, here's what I envision. I envision the guy on the street corner with the sign that says, repent or go to hell. Repent, you wicked fill in the blanks, right? And repentance, biblically, is this beautiful word it's this invitation that regardless of how dark life is right now, no matter how far you've wandered off the path, you heard the promises, you trusted the promises, and yet you decided to live in a way that was contrary to them, regardless of how far gone you think you are, the pathway home is open if you'll change your mind in a way that will lead you to a change in direction. When we see the word repentance in scripture, we should high five ourselves. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. The way home is open to a person even like me. It's the kindness of God that leads us to a place of repentance, not the anger of God. It's the kindness of God, Romans chapter 2 verse 4, that leads us to a place of saying back to him, God, Thank you for welcoming me home. So here's the, will you look up at me for a second, you guys? I, I really, I think God wants to do some business with us today. It, it, it is so easy to just get caught up in religiosity. It's so easy to get caught up in just one day after another living life. And I, I just want to invite you 
to pray a dangerous prayer today. It's a prayer right out of the Psalms. It's Psalm 139. And it's David, the psalmist, and he says this. He says, search me, O God. Know me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Will you pray that today? One of the things I love about David and his writing in this psalm is implicit within it is this admittance, God, I, I may have missed something. God, there might be something that's so ordinary and so present in my life every single day that I'm walking past it and I'm drifting and I don't even know it. God, will you wake me up? That's the prayer. Will you pray it? Will you pray it? God, wake us up. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's what he's going back to God and he's going, God, I need you to guide this life. I need you to steer it. And so I'm repenting of anything in me that's not true, that's not of you, that's not honoring to your name. I am ditching that and I'm saying, God, I'm moving forward with you. Arise and go to Bethel. Arise and go to Bethel. It's this invitation back to a place of innocence, to a place where we hear God's voice, and to a place where we bow in beautiful surrender to our great God. See, repentance requires intentionality because my default, and I'm guessing yours too, is to just simply accept or justify sin in our life that we grow so accustomed to. So repent. It's a beautiful thing. Repent. Come home. And so they take this journey to Bethel, to Bethel. The house of God literally is what it means. In verse 9, and it says, And God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padan Aram, he, he, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Okay, anybody here last week? It's like deja vu, right? If you go to chapter 32, you're going to read almost the exact same dialogue between God and Jacob. Hey, Jacob, your name's Jacob, right? And Jacob's like, oh, yeah? No longer shall your name be Jacob, but your name shall be Israel. Jacob means swindler, it means cheater, it means liar, and Jacob lived up to everything his name meant. Israel means, and in contrast to one who, who controls people and manipulates people and lies to people, Israel means one who wrestles with God. The, the playing field of his life changed definitively. God, I'm wrestling with you now. I'm not trying to manipulate and control people. And so it's Jacob who's reminded by God who he really is. Why? Well, because if you read the previous two chapters, you see a whole lot of Jacob, but not a whole lot of Israel. He starts to live again like Jacob. He abdicates responsibility. He slips into passivity. He embraces complacency. He's a shadow of who he really wants to be. And here's what God comes and does. He graciously reminds him in the midst of his failure, in the midst of his sin, 
you are still, your, your behavior looks like Jacob, but your identity is Israel. The fact that the light, your life has come off the rails does not negate the reality that God has changed you from the inside out. You look like Jacob still, but I want to assure you, you are Israel. I mean, how many of us want to go, oh yeah, we, we wrestle with this all the time, don't we? Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Both of you know it. That's awesome. The new has come right. But it doesn't feel like it a lot of the time, does it? And sometimes our actions look a whole lot more like the old than they do the new, right? So I don't know about you, but my default is to go back and to wonder, God, did your work on my behalf really work? Did it take root? Because I sure feel like there's a whole lot of Jacob still left in me. And there's a whole, there's a lack of Israel that I'm starting to see come through in my life. My name is Saint. But so many of my actions are sinner. What do we do with that? A lot of people, they try to work harder, do more, pray prayers and say, God, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to do more. And then they feel guilty because they don't. And it's this really tragic downward spiral that many followers of Jesus find themselves in. Here's my proposal. I think, and this is always the trump card, so I, I hesitate to play it, but I, I will this time. I think we should do what God does. The question becomes, what does God do? When, when Jacob is Israel, but he's acting like Jacob, what does God do? Well, he comes and he reminds him of a conversation that they already had. Hey, Jacob, wake up. You're no longer Jacob. You're Israel now. Remember who you really are. The fact that you have failed in your behavior does not negate that he's changed your identity. And look up at me for a second. I want to say it directly to you. The fact that you've failed in your behavior does not negate the fact that he's changed your identity. You are a child of God. There is therefore now, right now, this moment, no, zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Somebody say amen. 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 See, remembrance inquires, requires intentionality because my default is forgetfulness and defining my identity based on my behavior. So the pathway home is always remembering not what we've done, but how great our God is. Remember, he's changed you from the inside out. Here's what I love that the dialogue between Jacob and God is not, um, hey, Jacob. And Jacob's like, yeah? I really need you to try a little bit harder, Jacob. I need you to be a better leader of your family, Jacob. I need you to step up and be the father that I've called you to be, Jacob. I need you to take a little bit more control, and I need you to do a better job. And Jacob, what was the deal with all the idols that you let just dwell in your camp, and you let your family worship them? Jacob, you really let me down. 
which just a quick time out in parentheses, is so much of our internal dialogue with God, isn't it? But God's dialogue with Jacob is way different. God preaches to Jacob. Hey, Jacob, look up at me, he says. You are no longer Jacob. You're Israel. Remember who you are. Your failure and behavior has not forfeited the reality of your identity. And Jacob, while you're at it, remembering who you are, verse 11, remember who I am. I am a mighty God, verse 12, who makes promises to you and keeps them regardless of how good you are to me. That's what the dialogue looks like. And Jacob walks away from this conversation recognizing what I hope you recognize too is that when the circumstances of life fail you, the promises of God hold you. And so Paul will write to the church at Corinth, we do not lose heart. Outwardly we're wasting away, sure. We're getting beat up day by day, but inwardly we're being renewed for these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is unseen, not on what is seen, for what is unseen is eternal, but what's seen is temporary. He goes, guys, we've got a promise and we're holding on to it and it is holding us up when all of the circumstances of life let us down. So the pathway home for a follower of Jesus, the, the pathway back to vitality, remember, it's, it's rejecting passivity and embracing intentionality around, we've seen two things so far. One is repentance. God, we're going to take seriously the way that you've called us to live, and, and we're going to try our best to say we want to we honor you and live in a way that would lift higher name. Repentance, one. And two, remembrance, who we are in Christ. Verse 13. And then God went up from him in the place where they'd spoken. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a, a pillar of stone. Um, it's an Ebenezer. When we sing the song, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, and sing, Here I Raise an Ebenezer, it's just a, a pillar of remembrance. It's remembering how good God has been. And Jacob poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. And it's this same place that he's come to again. God met him there in the first place. He, re, he gave him promises. And he reminded him of the world that's God-bathed that he lives on. And he brings him back there. I love this picture. He says, Jacob, I know you've wandered. And I know you've strayed. And I know that life is looking a little bit tangled up and a mess and you're a shadow of the person you wanted to be. But Jacob, as part of the journey out of this, I want to rem remind you of a time when I was real. And I want to remind you of a time when I spoke to you. And I want to remind you of a time where you heard my voice and you surrendered your life. And Jacob, I want you to build your future, not from scratch, but I want to take the pieces and the rubble that are your life. And I want to remind you at every turn and at every disappointment and at every pain, I have been faithful. And Jacob, I'm not calling you to start over from scratch. I'm inviting you to begin again. And so he brings him back to this place. That's great news. Is that, that's great news that our God weaves together all these pieces of our story. And he takes him back. 
And he invites Jacob then to make this pillar, this significant of Jacob going, God, you've got me. Recommitment, it requires an intentionality because my default is more of the same. Coasting is the path of least resistance. It is. This is the easiest thing to have happen in our life. So when Jacob builds this pillar, he decides, he says, God, I am now, I'm I'm reminding myself of who I am. I'm repenting of the sin and the wrong that I've done. And I want to come and once again bow at your throne. Here's the thing. Here's a really, really important thing, and then we'll land the plane. The pillar that Jacob builds is not based on how awesome Jacob claims he's going to be. Praise the Lord. Because how many of our recommitments are like, all right, Lord, I know I've failed the last 40 times, but this time it's going to be different. And in the back of our mind, we, we know, no, it's not. See, Jacob's commitment is not, this is how awesome I'm going to be. Jacob's commitment is, this is how amazing you have been. And you've been faithful to your promises, even when I was flaky in my behavior. And when I let you down, you held on to me. And when I abdicated my responsibility, God, you were still good. You beckoned me home. You invited me into the way of repentance. You reminded me who I really am. And now I'm building my life, not on how awesome I plan on being, but how amazing you have been through every generation your steadfast love and faithfulness has been good. And friends, those are the anchors we need to sink deep into the soil of our soul. Not we're going to do better and we're going to try harder, but God, you've never failed. You've never failed. And that's where I sink my anchor. Not I'm going to do great and I'm going to do better this time, but God, you've held me every single time. This recommitment does absolutely nothing to change where Jacob stands with God. And it does everything to remind him the way that God has always stood firm with him. Those are the kind of pillars we need in our life. So if you go, hey, Paulson, that's me. I, I, am, I, I came in on fumes. Maybe there's some areas in your life that God has just put his finger on today. I've been praying all week that he would. Not so that you'd feel bad, but so you'd be invited to life. Or maybe you're here for the for the first time or the first time in a long time and you're just sort of uh, not sure about Jesus, I just want to tell you the pathway to vitality is by rejecting passivity because when we are passive and complacent, we end up in places we never wanted to be. But when we're intentional, and what I mean by that is we repent and we say, God, search me. And when we remember who he's made us to be, and when we say, God, you've got my life because you've always been faithful and commit back to him, He leads us to a place where we are filled with his goodness and his joy and his love. If you've wandered, friend, I pray that you would embrace the invitation to return to vitality this morning. It's open, yes, even to you. Let's pray.
book of Revelation. The Apostle John records Jesus in his letters to the churches, and in letter to one of the churches, it's the church at, at Ephesus. He talks about how great and how wonderful their theology has been, how great their church programs are and their Sunday school classes are. But he says this to them, verse 4, chapter 2. He says, but I have this against you. You've abandoned or you've forgotten the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore. And with all of our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I just want to invite you, will you remember? Would you remember back to, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, back to what it was like when you first met him? there is just a vibrance in your soul? The invitation today is arise and go to Bethel. Come home. Just remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. Turn from the things that have just become a common part of life and you've accepted as normal. Repent means come out of hiding. And then do the things you did at first. That's the pathway forward, friends, is repentance, remembrance, and recommitment. And so Jesus, this morning, that's our posture. I guess I just want to say, is it that's for you? Will you raise your hand this morning? Just go, yeah, that's for me. God, I need that. Yeah, yeah. Hands all over the room. That, God, that's our prayer this morning in this place is that we would hear your voice in a fresh way and maybe you use crisis and to catalyze us out of and call us out of complacency today. We don't want to just drift. We know we don't drift anywhere good. We want to intentionally follow after your heart, your way. And so, Lord, we turn from the things that we've embraced that aren't of you. We remember the fact that regardless of the way that we've acted, that your name over us is saved, redeemed, holy, new, saint, no longer sinner. And, Lord, it's our desire to build our lives and stand on your beautiful promises. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, will you stand with me as we sing our benediction together?